The Old Covenant reading for this morning is taken from the book of the prophet Micah chapter 6, beginning at verse 6. We'll be reading through verse 8 this morning. The word of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Here endeth the Old Covenant reading. The New Covenant reading is taken from the Gospel according to Matthew. Matthew chapter 1, beginning at verse 18. We'll be reading through verse 25 this morning. The word of our God. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Norman Rockwell may be the most distinctively American painter and illustrator who has ever lived. For 50 years... His illustrations of Americana graced the pages of the Saturday Evening Post. It's also quite famous. But truth be told, the critics have never been quite as pleased with the artwork of Norman Rockwell as the masses have been. I believe the reason for this is because Rockwell painted us as we wanted to be rather than as we actually are. And in this, I side with Norman Rockwell. I side with the masses. I I think that though his art is sentimental in one sense, it's precisely through that sentimental nature of his art that Rockwell held forth the aspirations of common Americans. I mean, let's face it. If you're going to send a greeting card to someone this Thanksgiving or this Christmas, you're not going to send one with a portrait done by Andy Warhol on the cover of the card. Norman Rockwell is your man. Um, He portrays the type of holiday celebrations that we want our friends and our loved ones to enjoy, that we want to enjoy ourselves and with our own families. 
right? So Norman Rockwell very much portrays the type of celebrations that we really want for the holidays. Yet when we turn to the original story, what actually happened when Jesus was conceived in the virgin's womb and born in the town of Bethlehem in a manger, we discover that it was anything but a Norman Rockwell type of Christmas. Look at verse 18 with me. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So far, so good. If you were here with us last week, you know that this word that the English Standard Version is here translating birth, in chapter 1 they translated genealogy, actually can mean a whole range of things. And I want to suggest it's best to think of this primarily as origin. Even this story only briefly mentions Jesus in terms of his birth. It's really talking about uh, the virgin conception of our Lord through the Holy Spirit. Uh, The questions that people would have asked when Jesus bursts on the scene, we're going to get there in the middle of chapter 4 of Matthew, is who is this remarkable rabbi and where did he come from? And Matthew was telling us the background story, the origin story, of why this teacher is such a remarkable person. Because he is not merely the son of man, he is also the son of God. I I did mention last week that this word that's translated is the word genesis, from which we get the word genesis. I think that's useful to keep in mind, because Matthew is very much matching up versus the book of Genesis telling us the creation story, within this opening chapter of Matthew telling us the story of how new creation comes into existence. In fact, you may have even had a hint there that there's a structural similarity between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and the passage we looked at last week and the passage we're looking at this week from Matthew. In Genesis chapter 1, God gives a creation story that gives us the big picture. Right? He tells about how the Lord spoke the entire universe into existence. And then we turn to chapter 2 and we see this very intimate story of Adam and Eve being created in the image of God and God entering into this very special relationship with him. Matthew's doing the same thing. See, last week what we saw was the big picture of the genealogies. How all the promises God had made from Abraham through David through all the prophets are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That's the big story. This week he begins again with that same word, Genesis. And he brings it to that intimate story of just one Jewish man and one humble Jewish woman and how the incarnation would crash into their lives. I think that's useful to keep that connection with Genesis in mind. Now, at first, the scene is one that we would naturally associate with joyful anticipation. I mean, Joseph and Mary are betrothed. So we're going to see in a moment... Um, Jews in the first century took betrothal a lot more seriously than Americans take engagement in the 21st century. That'll be important to see. Although the wedding was still in the future, in many ways the betrothed couple would be treated legally as though they were already married. So, for example, sexual immorality while you were betrothed was not merely fornication, it was adultery and would be treated that way by the law. And in order to break up a betrothal, 
You couldn't just say, I don't want to get married to you anymore. You had to go to the courts and legally get divorced. Right? So it's a very, very serious thing. And yet divorce was the last thing on Joseph's mind. I mean, Joseph would have been dreaming about the life that he and Mary were going to build together. This remarkable, godly young woman from a godly family. And I'm sure that what he was seeing was all the blue skies that lay ahead of them. Not that this was just a sentimental dream. Joseph would have been hard at work. Um, Joseph would have been preparing for their life together as husband and wife. During the betrothal period, it was common for um, the groom to actually prepare the physical house that they were going to live in. We actually don't know about Joseph's family situation. If he's still living with his parents, he would have been building a new room onto their house, the place where they were going to live together. If he already had his own house, he would have been expanding it and enhancing it. And you got to remember, Joseph is a builder. It's his trade. This is hard work. You know, it's still hard work today. But back then, they didn't have power tools. He was moving the rocks and stuff by hand. And after a long, hard day at work, he would come home and do a little bit more work on that house, a little bit more work on that room. And you have to think he's doing it with great joy. I mean, after all, this is his profession. And as he's doing the work, he's imagining Mary being there with him and her appreciating the craftsmanship, the hard work he put in to prepare their life together. It was going to be so, so good. And then with a single word, it all came crashing down. Pregnant. How could she? I mean, Mary seemed like such a godly young woman. How could she? How could she do this to me? You know, we were told that the child conceived in Mary's womb was of the Holy Spirit, but Joseph doesn't know that. And Joseph knows where babies come from, and he knows that he's not the father. How could she? Verse 19. And her husband Joseph, being a just man, and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Beloved Joseph was a just man. There can be no real thought of going ahead and marrying someone who had committed adultery, as he supposed. Right? There could be no thought of a righteous and just Jewish man who trusted in Yahweh going through with this wedding. Keep in mind, it is precisely adultery that this would have been considered at the time. In theory, this sort of adultery could be punished by death. Now, in practice, we don't have any record that that was commonly enforced. Joseph is not thinking about criminal charges against her that Mary is going to end up being stoned for committing adultery. That's not what's on his mind. The question for Joseph was not about Mary's criminal prosecution. It was about whether or not he should put her away in a quiet divorce or whether he should bring civil charges against her. Please remember this. If Joseph keeps quiet, everybody will assume that he was the father. That he also had been engaged in sexual misconduct. Shameful misconduct. 
and it would have followed him all the days of his life. Joseph was a righteous man, but his reputation would have been mud. Godly parents would have kept their daughters away from Joseph. And the rumors about his sexual immorality would follow him for years, and if he stayed in that same area all the days of his life. On the other hand, if Joseph simply breaks it out into the open, I mean, Mary doesn't really have a defense. Joseph knows he's not the father. Joseph is going to be openly cleared, openly vindicated that he's the innocent party. In fact, according to the laws in that day, he'd be able to keep the dowry and all the gifts that had been given to the couple to be as well. What would he do? Let me ask you this. What would you do? What would you do if you were in Joseph's shoes? Would you choose when you have been deeply hurt and you have the opportunity to vindicate yourself at the expense of the very person or people who have hurt you, what would you do? And I want to suggest that the very first thing you ought to do is what Joseph's already done. That is, you ought not to rush simply on the burst of emotion to action. You ought to deliberate before the living God. And you do that by prayerfully consulting his word and pouring out your heart to him, seeking his guidance, seeking his comfort, seeking his blessing. Here is a good verse to consider from this morning's Old Covenant reading. Micah 6.8 says this, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Think about that. Do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. What does that look like? Beloved, it looks exactly like Joseph. That's what it looks like. In the midst of having his life torn apart, Joseph shows compassion to Mary. Mary. He does what is just by insisting that they not move forward in marriage, but he also shows a profound mercy in determining to divorce Mary quietly because he was unwilling to put her to shame. Did Mary deserve that mercy? Well, not if she did what Joseph thinks he did. She did. That's not what mercy is. Mercy is about not giving to the people who have harmed us what they deserve and rather paying the cost of that ourselves. That is what Joseph did. Joseph did justice and Joseph loved mercy. And although the Bible does not record a single direct spoken word from Joseph, we can see through his actions that he was a truly godly man. I think it's instructive for us that the Lord doesn't actually rush to send an angel to Joseph. You know, he doesn't tell Joseph this in advance so that when Joseph hears the news from someone else that Mary's pregnant, he goes, well, I already know. An angel told me, right? She's pregnant from the Holy Spirit. God does not do that. The Lord lets Joseph have to wrestle with something that was tearing his heart apart. Why would the Lord do that? Well, we're not told, right? So we have to keep that in mind. We are not told. But I suspect an important part of the reason is the Lord was using this adversity to refine Joseph 
After all, this would not be the last adversity that would come into his life. Mary's child, who he will adopt as his own son, will be born in a manger. Herod will seek to kill him. He will have to flee with his mother and his son to Egypt to get away. And the Lord, by bringing adversity into his life and then bringing the message, the good news, that this is actually the right thing to do, that God has this all in his plans, was preparing Joseph to deal with all those adversities in the future. Beloved, that's important for us. When you face adversity in your life, you ought not to start with, doesn't God understand? Right? Why is God letting me go through this? The Lord uses adversity to refine his people so that we will become more like Jesus, but also to prepare us for greater fruitfulness in the days and years ahead. Before we complain about the adversity in our lives, we need to remember that the Lord is using that adversity not to crush us, but to refine us. And yet once Joseph is resolved to put Mary away quietly, the Lord does speak to him. Look at verses 20 and 21 with me. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Well, this message resolves the immediate conflict that's tearing Joseph's life apart, but it also points way beyond Joseph to how God was at work not simply to meet his needs, but to meet our needs as well. What might that be? The address itself must have been a bit jarring to Joseph. I mean, you know, he, he's, a, he's not the poorest guy in the neighborhood. He's a builder. He's a, he's a construction worker. We often say carpenter. He would have worked with stones too. But he was fairly humble in the social scale of things. And the Lord sends his angel and says, Joseph, son of David. Well, as we're reading the genealogy last week, we naturally think of the fact that it focuses on David, the messianic promises that God is going to raise up a messianic king to sit on the throne of David forever. But Joseph would have gotten that too. This must have been jarring to him. The language of son of David would, should make us immediately think of the Messiah, and that is certainly what Joseph must have been thinking as well. But here's the question. What sort of Messiah? Was the Lord finally going to liberate his people from Israel's Roman oppressors? Undoubtedly, many Jews in the first century would have been thrilled at the news that God was going to deliver them from the Romans. But was Rome really their worst enemy? Set aside for a moment first century Israel. Apply this to your own life. Uh, what do you think of when you think of God rescuing us? Uh, I think this is because I was in the Navy, but one of my first thoughts is being rescued from drowning. Uh, some of you might be thinking of God rescuing you, or someone else rescuing you, from a burning building. You know, a bunch of firemen rush in and they, they pull you out. But what about God? What do you want God to rescue us from? 
There's a lot of answers to that question that are good answers, things we pray for. We want the Lord, perhaps, to rescue us from war, from cancer, from dreadful chronic loneliness that no one knows about but is eating at our lives. Yeah, pray for those things. But do you understand God is saying that's not your greatest need? Jesus came to rescue you from the greatest danger and to provide for your greatest need, that is to rescue you from God himself. See, our biggest problem is that we're sinners in the hands of a holy God. Jesus puts it rather bluntly to us. Jesus says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more they can do. But I warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Now mark this well. Jesus does not only warn us about the wrath that is to come. Well, that would be a good thing. But it would be empty if that's all we did. Jesus doesn't simply warn us about the wrath that is to come. He goes to the cross and bears that wrath in your place. So there is nothing left for you. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus came to do. As our nation has become more secular, it's become common around Christmas time. You see the signs go up. You hear it occasionally on the radio. Remember the reason for the season. What exactly is the reason for the season? I suspect many of the people who are saying those things don't quite have it right, actually. Well, yeah, Jesus is the reason for the season. But the Bible's more specific than that. The Bible tells us, you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Beloved, that is the reason for every Sunday worship service. Verses 22 and 23. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. See, these verses give us the second half of the answer to the question, what is the reason for the season? The first half is, you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. But the second half is, they will call his name Emmanuel, meaning God with us. I mean, how could a mere man save us from our sins anyway? God requires perfect, personal, and perpetual righteousness of you before you could stand before him forever in glory. How could a mere man provide that for you? And the answer, of course, is, is he couldn't. Even if God were to create a new Adam and keep that Adam, new Adam completely sinless for all the days of his life, and that Adam chose to go to the cross and die for you, the best that he could possibly do is save one person, and he would have to stay under the wrath of Almighty God for all eternity in your place. Because that's what the punishment of my sins deserves. Beloved, that's what the punishment of your sins deserves. But because Jesus is not simply a mere man, he's a true man, but he's also God, 
He's able to bear the weight of the wrath of God against the sins of every single person who will ever be saved and to rise again on the third day because it is not possible for death to hold him. Do you now understand what is at stake in the supernatural conception of Christ? I've heard actually very gifted scholars kind of poo-poo this. It's not really that big a deal whether or not you believe in the virgin birth. Beloved, if Jesus Christ is just another mere man, no matter how good he is, you and I are still dead in our sins. But because Jesus Christ is the Son of God, come in the flesh. God himself loves you. God himself, through this man, has paid your penalty. God himself walked in your shoes as a man so that his righteous record could be reckoned to your account so that for all eternity God would look upon you as though you were his own son. Because God named him Jesus, we know that he came for the purpose of saving his people from our sins. Because he was and is Emmanuel, God with us, we know that he has the power to save his people from our sins. That is a glorious truth, but it's not the end of the good news. See, Jesus didn't become man simply because that was what was necessary to save you from your sins, although that's true. But he didn't do this as though it was just some sort of necessary transaction in the economy of God. See, Jesus doesn't simply save you from hell. Jesus saves you for himself, to bring you into his family, so that you will be a member of God's family forever in loving relationship with him. And because Jesus wanted to bring you into his family, he drew near and pitched his tent among us as God with us. And it is this same Jesus who has promised, promised that Matthew repeats at the end of the gospel, that he will never leave you nor forsake you. How would Joseph respond to the good news? Verses 24 and 25. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. The Lord told Joseph to move forward, so Joseph moved forward. Simple. The Lord told Joseph to call his child's name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. So Joseph called his name Jesus. In a word, Joseph was obedient. Now this is not blind obedience. This is faith going public. This is the obedience that flows from faith, from trusting God. Joseph believed the Lord, and his actions were simply the obedience that flows from faith. But I want to give that obedience another name. Humility. See, humility is not about thinking poorly of yourself. That is not humility. Humility is bowing your knee before Almighty God and saying, not my will, but your will be done. That's what Joseph is doing here. Earlier we looked at God's call on our lives through the prophet Micah. Uh, Micah 6.8 is actually one of those verses that's well worth memorizing. 
He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? That you do justice, that you love mercy, and that you walk humbly with your God. Beloved, that's what Joseph did. He did justice, he loved mercy, and he bowed the knee to walk humbly with his God. On the surface, it might all seem so simple. Uh, Joseph did the right thing. Then the Lord gave him a fresh revelation. Joseph simply did what he was told. So yes, on the one hand, it's actually really quite simple. What it's not is easy. See, it's so simple that you don't have to wait till you're 17 or 18 to follow God. I don't care how old you are here this morning. You can follow God. You can trust God and glorify him. You don't have to wait till you get older or you get a better education. It really is that simple. But what it is not is easy. Have you ever stopped to think what identifying with Mary and with Jesus cost Joseph? First, there's the obvious fact that everyone they knew would have thought that he had slept with Mary before they got married. Every single one of them perhaps the exception of Elizabeth, maybe Zechariah. But the people in Nazareth, they would have been scandalized. And you can almost hear the gossip. Oh, I remember Joseph in the synagogue. Boy, he looked so intent while the scriptures were being read. And how much of them he memorized. What a hypocrite. Right? That's what Joseph was taking on. Now here's the thing. If you're a Christian here this morning, I trust that most of you are, You actually want to become better. Not simply a little morally better. You know, every day in every way I become a little bit better. But holier. More pleasing to God. More like Jesus. You really do have that desire. But here's the honest truth. You also want to be known for that too. Right? You want to become men and women of the word and of prayer. But you really wouldn't mind that much if people knew that you were men and women of the word, and of prayer. Here's the question. What do you do when those two things are in conflict? What do you do when doing the right thing guarantees that other people will think you're wrong, that you're a hypocrite? Well, you have to wrestle with that because that's going to happen sometimes in your life. By identifying with Mary and with Jesus... Joseph chose shame in the eyes of the world in order that he might seek the praise and pleasure of the living God. Do you get that? By identifying with Mary and with Jesus, Joseph chose shame in the eyes of the world that he might seek the praise and pleasure of the living God and through God's grace become the father of the savior of the world. That is a remarkable story, but it is not the most remarkable thing in this passage. Beloved Joseph is not the most humble person in this passage. Mary is not the most humble person in this passage. God is. The most astonishing thing is not that Joseph would choose the shame of identifying with Mary, but that Jesus Christ would choose the shame 
of identifying with you and me. So in a few months, when people once again say, remember the reason for the season, why not remember it through those two names? You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins, and they will call his name Emmanuel, meaning God with us. For in Jesus, God your Savior is with you, and God your Savior is for you forever. Amen.